Amen. Thank God for the job is leading us to sing of his greatness, sing of his power. Light of such greatness, we have nothing to fear because God, in all of His greatness, that has no end to it, because God is eternally great, because God, in all of His greatness, Paul writes, God is for us. God is for us who can be against us since God is for us or what can stand against us since God is for us fear really makes no sense it makes no sense not to trust Thank you. Well, let's prepare our hearts and minds to hear about more of his greatness. We will continue our journey in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Today, I desire to preach verses 22 through 25 of Mark 14. What a blessing this passage is, as with all of Mark. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom God. Amen. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage, for our glorious, glorious Savior. We get a chance to see the greatest gift that has ever been given, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We get to see the person of Christ, the work of Christ, all for your glory. For the accomplishment 
of our salvation. Wow, Heavenly Father. As familiar as this passage is to many of us who are listening, I pray that you would bless us to see it afresh. May our salvation never become stale or old to us. May we never outgrow the gospel lest we enter into foolishness. Pray, dear God, you bless your servant to preach. Holy Spirit, feel your servant. My mind, my emotions, my will, lock me in to the, your holy word so that I only preach and teach what you intended to be preached and taught. Oh, open the hearts of your people Pour in encouragement, pour in strength, pour in sanctification, pour in repentance, pour in true faith to those who are lost, pour in Heavenly Father, fill us with knowledge of your will in wisdom and in understanding. So as Elder Eves just prayed, our testimony will not only be in words but in deeds through our lives, people may see Christ. Bless us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is part three. The king prepares for his passion, his suffering. However, I subtitled this, Pictures, in the Lord's Supper. Pictures in the Lord's Supper. One of the things that I love to do, I love to sit down and look at old photos, particularly of my precious family. I love to look at pictures of my three precious daughters, Patrice, Tiffany, and Tilia, when they were little bitty babies and we're holding them in our arms. I love to look at pictures of my precious grandchildren, Jordan, Jaden, Joshua, Gavin, Gaia, and Reagan. <laughs> I love to see them and watch them through pictures as they grew up holding them in my arms. I love to see pictures of my precious wife and I as we were married in July 16, 1983 and our lives together she didn't age, but I did back when I had hair. I love to see old photos. I love to go to my mom's house, and she has this huge photo album of us when we were children. It, it, it's nothing like.
pictures because in pictures it 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 it, it brings back precious memories that have long-term impact in your mind. Today, I want to show you some pictures. <laughs> some pictures that the greatest artist in the world paints for us, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I, he, he shows us some pictures of his person and his work as he institutes what we know of today as the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. We have already seen verses 12 through 16, the preparation for the supper. Then in verses 17 through 21, last Lord's Day, we saw the problems in the supper. Today, in verses 22 through 25, I want us to look together and see the pictures in the supper. The Lord Jesus in this text gathers with his disciples to partake in his last meal before the cross. The meal Jesus Christ eats on the eve of his death is a meal that was designed by God the Father to exalt God the Son. This is Thursday. This is the day before Jesus hangs on the cross. This is the day before Jesus goes through all of the misery and the pain that he went through for us. This meal, this supper, preaches the gospel to us. It is a meal that displays the grace of God. It is a meal that signifies the creation of a new spiritual covenant between God and sinners. So here, at the Last Supper, Jesus establishes a new covenant, a new Passover, for which his blood poured out for many represents the Passover blood of, uh, of the Passover lamb, excuse me, inaugurating a new covenant with the new people of God. The prediction of Judas's betrayal and the disciples' abandonment that will happen afterwards stand in stark contrast to Jesus's faithfulness to God's purpose and plan. In the midst of betrayal and in the midst of abandonment, Jesus remains faithful to God's purpose and plan. 
I want you to see that. And in all of this, we still see, in all of these pictures, we still see our Lord preparing for his suffering. He's preparing and he's preparing his people for his suffering. So let's look together, beloved. Let's look together in verses 22 through 25. Let's look together at this main point, the pictures in the supper. The pictures in the supper. I want to show you these pictures and I, I pray that the Spirit will lock them into all of our remembrance. I pray that as we see these pictures, we will approach the Lord's table with greater reverence and greater awe and greater thanksgiving and greater love for our Savior. I pray that we will never see it again as we have seen it before. I pray that we will see it afresh as we look at these eternal pictures. Note with me together, let's look together at verse 22. The text says, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. Stop right there. Underscore blessing. Underscore blessing because, first of all, I want you to see there is a picture of praise. There is a picture of praise. Follow me. The word blessing in this sense is equivalent to praise or thanksgiving. We see the parallel in uh, uh, verse 23, giving thanks, same word. Now understand, it is not the consecrating of the bread here, but this is a solemn blessing or thanking of God for the bread. Follow me. It is not the consecrating of the bread. It is, a, it is a thanksgiving, a praising of God for the bread. You see, the blessing of the bread refers to the Jewish practice of giving thanks for bread at a meal. And here's what they would say according to the Mishnah. Uh, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, who brings forth bread from the earth. They knew that bread was a gift from God. And Jesus here, at the very beginning of the supper, he, he gives praise, he gives thanks to God. He is actually blessing God, praising God. Don't miss this point. Jesus leads his disciples to give praise to his heavenly father 
in the midst of what he's facing. He is facing betrayal by one who is, has been walking with him, but God is still worthy of praise. He is facing denial and the pain of Gethsemane, but God is still worthy of praise. He is facing abandonment uh, uh, of all of his disciples, but God is still worthy of praise. He is facing cruel beatings and unjust judgment, but God is still worthy of praise. He is facing the cross and ultimately being forsaken by God, but God is still worthy of praise. Wow. What a picture of praise. But keep looking at the photo album and notice another picture. There is a picture of substitution. A picture of substitution. Note the text with me again. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. A lot of unnecessary ink has been wasted on this phrase, this is my body. Now, it's obvious and very clear that the disciples would not, would not understand him to mean that what he asked them to take was actually his literal body. By this time, they were, they were all uh, used to their Lord speaking to them in figures of speech. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door in John 10, 9, they did not start looking for his hinges. When Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, they did not start trying to chew on his arm. The disciples instinctively recognized that Jesus was not speaking literally at all, but using metaphors to make a spiritual comparison. So, Jesus was not describing here a physical change, but a sacramental identification. The union or association between Jesus and the bread is not physical, but spiritual. So to say that the bread is his body is to say that it represents or signifies or symbolizes his body. Now, undoubtedly, it's clear to me that one of the reasons Jesus chose bread to serve as this sacramental symbol is that bread is so basic to life itself. We cannot live without daily bread. So when Jesus tells us to take and eat the bread that signifies his body, he's giving us something that we cannot live without, something we need to nourish our souls. Let's dig into it further. to understand what Jesus is saying, because this is a picture of substitution. The Greek word behind body 
It's not the word sarx, normally translated flesh, but soma, uh, translated body or being. So when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant my person, my whole being, myself. There are actually seven uh, transitive Greek verbs in verse 22, eat, take, bless, break, give, say, take. All of those verbs signify the gracious activity of Jesus on behalf of his disciples. All the activity signified by the verbs results in the gift of Jesus himself, holy and without reserve in his self-offering for the disciples. So Jesus gives us this life-giving nourishment in the bread of the Lord's Supper. But how is it substitution? Why do I say this is a picture of substitution? Well, Luke helps us out here in Luke 22, 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Now, give is just the word to use. Because Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. In breaking the bread, Jesus is showing us a picture of himself being offered for us. He's offering himself in his bodily sacrifice for our sins. I believe we see a reminder um, of this bodily sacrifice and the very fact that the sacramental bread is broken. And I know that Jesus' body was not broken, but this does echo the famous prophecy in Isaiah 53 where it was promised that our suffering servant Jesus would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities in Isaiah 53, 5. So the breaking of the bread serves as a sacramental signification of the bruised, crushed servant. Stay with me. This is my body that is given for you. Now, for you argues substitution. The New Testament uses this language to indicate that Jesus died in our place. His sacrifice was substitutionary. When Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you, he's already looking ahead to what he would do for them and for all disciples at the cross. He's speaking of himself as a saving sacrifice. He would give himself for us, dying in our place to pay the death penalty that we deserve. 
Elder Eve said that uh, Jesus in his prayer uh, has not dealt with us according to uh, our uh, uh, God, our Father, has not dealt with us according to what our sins deserve because he has dealt with Christ according to what our sins deserve. Follow me. To say that Jesus died for you is to say something more than he died for your benefit. It is saying more than, something more than he died for your benefit. It is to say he died in your place. See, if you don't understand the gospel, the doctrine of substitution that we deserve what Jesus received, then you don't understand the gospel. He suffered the death that all of us deserve to die. I ran across a wonderful illustration of this from something that happened not long after the end of the American Civil War when a man in farm clothes was seen kneeling at a soldier's grave in Nashville, Tennessee, a sympathetic bystander asked him, is that the grave of your son? No, the farmer replied. I, I, I have seven children, all of them young, and a wife on my poor farm. I was drafted into the Union Army, he goes on to say, and despite the great hardship it would cause to my family, I was required to serve. But on the morning I was to depart, the man who now lives in this grave, my neighbor's oldest son, came over and offered to take my place in the war. When the farmer stepped away, the bystander could see the words he had written on the gravestone. They simply read, he died for me. Beloved, this is the testimony of every believer in Jesus Christ. We have a Savior who offered himself, who died in our place. Every time we come to the table, the bread that is broken, we say, he died for me. Wow. It is a picture of praise no matter what's going on. It is a picture of substitution. He died in our place. But keep looking at the family album. And notice, thirdly, we see a picture of sacrifice. Follow me. In verses 23 and 24, and he, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. A picture of sacrifice. Now, like the bread, the cup is a symbol that signifies Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Just as the bread signifies Christ's body, so the cup also signifies his blood. 
These two words, the body and the blood, appear together several places in Scripture, Leviticus 17, 11 through 14, Deuteronomy 12, 23, Hebrews 13, 11. When they do, it is always in the context of sacrifice. When a sacrifice is offered, blood is poured out which Jesus signified by pouring out the cup for his disciples. Now notice this. Even before he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, he gave us the sacrament that shows his sacrifice. Follow me. Jesus said in pouring out this blood <coughs> he was establishing a new covenant the new covenant was brought into being by his death as a sacrifice now to understand more fully what this means we need to begin with the Old Covenant and the sacrificial blood on which it was based. It is the characteristic of the covenants that God has made with his people for salvation that they are made by sacrifice. A covenant is a bond in blood, a solemn commitment that God will keep his saving promise to the very death. This, was, this is always indicated by blood sacrifice. Now one of the best places, we, we could look at several places actually, but one of the best places to see this is Exodus 24. Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, God makes a covenant with his people through the prophet Moses and speaks specifically about the blood of the covenant. In verse 6, we read, on the day that the covenant was confirmed, Moses collected the blood of many sacrifices into large basins and threw, half of it, and threw half of it against the holy altar of sacrifice in the house of God. He took the other half and threw it on the people, saying, verse 8, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. We already see that making the covenant was a messy, bloody business. It was not signed like a contract, but sealed in blood. This was a sign of God's mercy, for the blood on the altar showed that the people had forgiveness for their sins, while the blood on the people uh, 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 themselves showed that they were included in the covenant of salvation. Follow me. That was the old covenant. But now Jesus had come to establish a new covenant to which the old covenant pointed. 
This was the covenant that God promised through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, listen to what Jeremiah writes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, watch this, will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I love the end. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. See, even the old covenant was a covenant of grace. But it was always looking forward to the time when God would fulfill the promises of salvation. God promised in the new covenant to write his law on our hearts. He promised that he will be our God and we will be his people. He promised to forgive our sins forever. Jesus, by himself, is the answer to all the old promises of the covenant. This is what Jesus is telling the disciples the night of the, of, 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 of the institution of the Lord's Supper. The new covenant had come. Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. Then he adds these staggering words. Words that should take our breath away if we understand what they mean. In my blood. That's how Luke writes it in Luke 22, 20. What is new about the new covenant? I'll tell you what's new about it. It's established by the blood of Christ. Of all the things we could say about the newness of the new covenant, this is the place to begin with the fact that the Son of God shed his own blood for our sins, my blood of the covenant. Wow. So what was, what was God doing in the Old Testament? The old sacrifices. We're getting God's people ready to understand the amazing reality we see right here with Jesus. The Old Testament blood sacrifices, the sacrifices of Adam, uh, Noah, and all the patriarchs, the sacrifices that were offered at Passover, the sacrifices that Moses made to establish the covenant, the sacrifices at the tabernacle, and later at the temple, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. 
on and on it go. Blood after blood after blood. All of these old covenant sacrifices were offered again and again because they were only animal sacrifices. Therefore, in themselves, they could not atone for human sin. But here he comes. Look at the picture. Jesus came to offer once and for all atonement for sin through the sacrifice of his own blood. On the eve of that sacrifice, he announced that he will establish the new covenant with his very own blood. The blood he shed on the cross for our sins. Understand that God has never asked anyone to shed his blood to establish the covenant of salvation. God has never asked anyone other than his son to shed his blood to establish the covenant of salvation. God has never asked anyone <laughs> other than his son to establish, to, to shed his blood, to establish the covenant of salvation. He offered the covenant blood himself. That's what Jesus is emphasizing uh, uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. It is my blood that will, will do this thing, he is saying. It is my blood that will establish the covenant. It is my blood that will atone for your sins. It is my blood that will gain your salvation. Wow. It's his blood. Man, we see a picture of praise. We see a picture of substitution. We see a picture of sacrifice. Any more pictures in the text? Absolutely. Keep the photo album open. As our Lord prepares for his suffering, he shows us a picture of forgiveness. This is amazing. Matthew helps us out in, in his gospel, and he puts it this way. We <clears throat> normally read it each first Sunday as we eat and drink together. Matthew says in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Is that not a picture of forgiveness? Follow me. Forgiveness means to let go, release, or remit. Uh, it often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. <laughs> it's a rich word. It is the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. To forgive someone means to release him or, or her from liability to suffer a punishment or penalty. Forgiveness from God, you see already, is bestowed 
freely. It is undeserved and cannot be earned. Forgiveness does not mean the penalty was not paid. It was paid because of substitution. It was paid because of his blood, his sacrifice. Jesus did pay. Jesus did die. Jesus did propitiate God. Jesus did satisfy the wrath or judgment of God due our sins. We deserve to be judged eternally in a lake of fire, but Jesus took our place. And he bestows his forgiveness freely. Freely given through Christ. Christ's death satisfied the righteous anger of God. These words really make a tremendous point. To be forgiven by God is our greatest need. Because it is only as our sins are forgiven and we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ that we can stand before a holy God. You, can you could define a Christian as someone who has been forgiven by God. It is by the blood of Christ that we are cleansed from sin's defilement. And I want you to notice the Lord thinks of forgiveness first. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He provides what we could never earn. He gives freely. He says, all we have to do is just ask for it. And just bask in his grace. Wow. What a picture of forgiveness. So we see <clears throat> a picture of praise, a picture of substitution, a picture of sacrifice, and a picture of forgiveness. In the picture of praise, shouldn't we? Praise God no matter what. Does our Lord not lead us in that? And enable us by his spirit to do that? In the picture of substitution, shouldn't we be willing to give ourselves to serve others? Did the Lord not give himself in our place? In the picture of sacrifice, should we not be willing to sacrificially give for others? In the picture of forgiveness, how could we hold the little debt people owe us when we look at the debt that we've been forgiven? See, our Lord shows us these pictures, but, but not only in these, in these pictures do we see our great and glorious salvation, the Lord shows us in these pictures and teaches us how to live in sanctification. Any more pictures? 
Well, yes. I hope by now you're, you're really being blessed and challenged and convicted and encouraged and strengthened as you're sitting down with me looking at the wonderful photo album uh, of the wonderful pictures in the Lord's Supper. And there, but there is another one. There is a picture of particular, particular redemption. A picture of part, particular redemption. Notice what Jesus said. He shed his blood for many. Wait a minute, Jesus. Why didn't you just say you shed your blood for every single person in the world? Don't turn me off. Because he didn't. We are used to saying that he shed his blood for everyone. Or for the world. And of course, you, you, you may be thinking, well, Pastor, it must not. Perhaps he hasn't read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or perhaps pastor hasn't read 1 John chapter 2. Jesus' propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, I've read that. Follow me. Jesus did give himself for the world in some sense. For example, his sacrifice and salvation are offered to the entire world, to people of every language, race, and culture. That's in the book of Revelation. His sacrifice is also sufficient for the entire world. He wouldn't have to die again. It's sufficient. Yet, the Bible teaches that Jesus' sacrifice does have a focus. Because Jesus says he gives himself for many. Paul said, Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now Jesus' sacrifice was, was sufficient to cover Judas' sins. Judas, the betrayer, his sacrifice was sufficient to cover his sins, but he did not actually pay for Judas's sin. Follow me. If he had paid for Judas's sin, then Judas would have been saved and forgiven. But the Bible says he was not, John 17, 12, Acts 1, 20. He was not saved. He was not forgiven. You can't have sins paid for and still remain unforgiven, not saved. 
Do I have anyone in here with me? <laughs> you see, Jesus taught in these few words that his death was for his own people only and that it was effective in saving them and only them for their sins. The reason we struggle with this is because we don't understand the person and work of Christ at Calvary. Jesus' blood, watch this, was an actual atonement for transgressions. He actually atoned for sin. His sacrifice actually propitiated God on behalf of all for whom he died. It satisfied, actually satisfied, the wrath of God. His death actually secured justification. And by his stripes, we really are healed. When sacrifices were made in the Old Testament on behalf of the people of God, it was made on behalf of all of them. All of them. Jesus said, John 6, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So you have the beautiful picture glorious Trinitarian salvation. The Father gives a love gift to the Son called the church. The Son pays the debt, the penalty for all of the sins of all of the people whom the Father gives. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation in time to all that were given and all whose sins were paid. Wow. Listen, here's what I'm saying. If Jesus pays for someone's sins, then he does deliver that person. He does not merely make redemption a possibility. We don't look at the cross and say, now it's possible for people to be saved. No, we look at the cross and we say, he actually atoned for sins. He actually satisfied the wrath of God. He actually accomplished redemption. And he actually did it for all that the Father had given him. So then, if you're listening to me, you're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. All of your sins have been paid for. And as the Father draws his people to his Son, his redemption, received by faith, guarantees eternal life. We see a picture of particular redemption in the words that Jesus says, it's poured out for many, and the many that is poured out for all will be saved. Cannot be lost. God will bring. <laughs> wow. These are some beautiful pictures, are they? Don't think of many in small numbers, though. In all things, Christ will have the preeminence. Don't, do not think of many in small numbers. John says he couldn't even count all of them. 
Any more pictures? Or is it time to close the book? No. There's a picture of true faith. A picture of true faith. Where do you see that? Notice Jesus said, take, this is my body. Now eating is implied in the taking. Then Jesus takes the cup and says, drink. So first there's the taking, then there's the eating. If you want to eat, you must take. And taking will not bless you unless you eat. We see a picture of faith. Jesus says, take. He's giving. He's giving. He says, drink. He's giving. He's giving. So faith is seen in the receiving. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. See, the picture is of sinners starving because they need food. And the Lord Jesus sets before him, sets, sets himself before us as the bread of life. We receive Christ. And we're strengthened and we're nourished and we're saved. See, this is faith. We must receive what he did for us. And we must internalize what he did for us on the cross. Faith is receiving. Faith is trusting. Faith is believing. Faith is appropriating. Faith is hoping in Christ alone. Have you received him? To as many, John says, chapter 1, to as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Are you resting in and trusting in Christ alone? Beautiful pictures out there. We see a picture of praise. We see a picture of substitution. We see a picture of sacrifice. We see a picture of forgiveness. And we see a picture of faith. Any more pictures in this wonderful, wonderful Lord's Supper? Yes, there's a picture of unity. There's a picture of unity. The unity of true believers. Beloved, the fact that the disciples were each given a piece of the same loaf, the same bread, symbolize their unity in Christ. According to the parallel passage in Luke 22, 19, Jesus added, given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now here's what happened. Christ, the bread of life, took on a human body. He demonstrated his divine life to all the world by living a sinless life in that body. He bore our sins on the cross while in that human body. He triumphed from the grave by bringing that body back to life and now he lives in that glorified body at the right hand of, of the Father where he prays for us. And he's coming back in that body. Now, as members of the body of Christ, we share that life. Here's the way Paul put it in reference to Holy Communion. 
Here's, here's the way Paul put it. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Thus, through the bread, we seek Jesus' incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. And our partaking of the bread symbolizes our real participation sharing in that life. So, if we are believers, we all partake of the life, the body of Christ. That's what the bread means to us. We don't create unity. Once we're saved, we're automatically in unity. We don't create it, we maintain it. We're all one in Christ. What a picture. Everybody eating by faith the same life, sharing by faith in the same life, participating by faith in the same life, operating by faith, same life, same power. There's only one hero in the text. It is not us, it's Christ. He brought us into unity with one another. That's why Paul was so upset in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. He was so upset with the churches at Corinth when there was division, schism in the body. He was upset because division is the very antithesis to unity. It goes against all that, uh, that Christ has done for us. Christ died to bring us into unity. Ephesians chapter 2. You give a baby some crayon and a picture that you value, and they start scribbling on it, messing up the picture. You get real upset about that. When we, when we are divisive, it's like we're scribbling on the picture acting like a baby that doesn't understand what the picture really means. Just scribbling on it. Let's walk in unity. Let's seek to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4. Picture of unity. So what, what are we seeing today? We've seen a picture of praise. Glory to God. A picture of substitution, a picture of sacrifice, a picture of forgiveness, a picture of faith, and a picture of unity. Any more pictures? One more. Well, it's actually more, but one more that I have time to give you. The last picture I want to show you is a picture of eternal security. A picture of eternal security. You see that picture in verse 25. Truly, 
I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He closes the institution of the Lord's Supper, the new covenant. He closes it with hope. I love this. Jesus, you know you're dying the next day, right? And now you're looking to some day in the future? Sounds like you're preparing for your suffering. Sounds like you know you're going to get up again. Sounds like you know that you're suffering with purpose. Sounds like you know that the Lord is going to bless you in your suffering. It ends with hope until that day looks forward to the future eschatological day when the kingdom will be established in all of its glory. That day, the time is undetermined but assumes the coming reality. That day. No, no, we don't know the time of that day. It's undetermined. But Jesus says that day because that day is a reality. He says, I will not drink. Drink in the kingdom metaphorically describes the kingdom in terms of a messianic banquet. Oh my goodness. The, the present tense of drink Follow me now, indicates that the, that the feast in the kingdom will not be a, a single event. It's going to be an ongoing feast. Oh, we're going to have a good time. That word new denotes the, uh, 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 the wine will be new in quality, pointing to the spiritual character of the feast. We will have new redeemed bodies in a renewed world. Wow, when I drink, when I drink also points to the fact that Jesus will be the host at the banquet. Oh my goodness. It, already we see his messianic consciousness. When I drink, I will be a host. Man, I'm going to have this banquet when I'm going to drink this new with you in my father's kingdom. And you have no idea how many people will be at the banquet. But I'll tell you who will be there. I know for a fact who will be there. All that the father has given him <laughs> will be at the banquet. Jesus is announcing his messianic triumph in the, in the midst of all that he's about to go through. Every believer united by faith with the risen Christ. What is it we can't face? Jesus says, you better remember verse 25. Wait a minute. The, I, I'm about to close because... Ooh, I'm getting out of live stream. 
according to verse 25, everything that we face now will not destroy our faith. This is a promise, not just for the 12. I better stay at the 11 because Judas is gone. It's a promise for all of the beloved disciples. Notice Jesus does not, does not say that he hopes to drink or that he may drink if things turn out well. Glory to God. He does not say that. You know why he does not say that? Because he's sovereign. He's going to make sure all things turn out well. He's going to make sure that we all make it. He promises that he will drink nothing that the disciples did then. You know what they did, right? Peter denied him not one time, not two, but three. All of them abandoned him. Nothing that they did then nothing that we do now can annul the promise of Christ's work. Pastor, you don't know how bad I, I know I'm saved, but you don't know how bad I messed up uh, yesterday. Uh, yeah, go to him in repentance. Go to him trusting. But know this, beloved. Jesus says to you, who messed up so bad yesterday, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. My fathers knew, knew with you in the kingdom of God. Wow. Why does this have to be true? Why is this a picture of eternal security? Well, because all the pictures fit together. I've got to close. All the pictures fit, fit together. If Jesus paid for every sin, it means that we could never lose his blessing or favor. If Jesus paid for every sin, it means that we are eternally forgiven. If Jesus paid for every sin, it means we could never experience the ultimate judgment of God for sin since he's already paid for it. If Jesus paid for every sin, and, and, and if he was great enough and strong enough to satisfy the full wrath of God, the full weight of that wrath coming down on him, if, if he did that, why would we think he can't keep us now? I don't know if I can weather COVID-19. Well, Jesus says, I weather the wrath of God. Do we even want to think about comparing COVID-19 to the wrath of God? Jesus, uh, that's why Paul writes, if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give you all things? He's going to bring us into conformity to, to the image of Christ. He's going to bring us to glory. He's already weathered the greatest storm. The storm of the, uh, of the century has already been weathered. Calvary, Calvary, he's already done it. What a picture of eternal security. That means you and I are in verse 25. I hear somebody, you say, but I'm not Peter. Well, there's nothing great about Peter. 
It's his savior that's so great. Say, I'm not John. I didn't write any books of the Bible. There's nothing great about John. It's his savior. All of them were were sinners just like you and I. Nobody deserved to be there. I don't care how many books they wrote. Nobody deserves to be there. Salvation was earned. Redemption was accomplished by one person. That's Jesus Christ. And unless there's faith in Jesus Christ, unless you turn from your life and receive his life, you will not be there. That's what Peter and John did. But these are some wonderful pictures out there. Let me close with, uh, I know I guess I have some uh, Laker, Los Angeles Laker haters listening to me. But uh, a serious basketball fan, you, you may recall, the Los Angeles Lakers did win several championships. Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, but even after Shaq left, you know, Kobe won two more back to back. Later retired, and since his retirement, the team has not won another NBA championship, though many think they would have won one this year. I don't know, but they have not as of now. And during their difficult years, after the decline, loyal fans like myself and Brother Derwin Carter, we moan about the decline. But sometimes after a Laker loss, we would say something like this. This year's team is weak, but nothing can take away the glory years of those NBA championships. And the principle behind that is this, nothing can undo a past triumph. Present foolishness cannot corrupt past victories. And what's true in basketball is even more and more and more and more true in the spiritual realm. Jesus died for our sins. He rose for our life. No present sin, no coronavirus, nothing can reverse the glory days. Since his action completely atoned for our sins, we have security, victory for forever. Nothing we do today can undo his past achievement. It blesses my soul. So what are we seeing today? We've seen a picture of praise. We've seen a picture of substitution. We've seen a picture of faith. We've seen a picture of sacrifice. We've seen a picture of forgiveness. We've seen a picture of unity. 
and we've seen a picture of eternal security. So whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, remember the pictures if you truly know the Son. To God be glory for the great things that he has done.